we have a crisis in the world, tremendous crisis, and also crisis in our consciousness, in us. I see the urgency of change, radical revolution, mutation in the mind. I see it. It is necessary. There is complete quietness of the mind, and that which is silent has vast space. Only then that which is nameless comes into being. This is Urgency of Change, the Krishnamurti podcast. Words divide the fact from the observer. The word, or the screen of words, has separated the observer and the observed. Hello and welcome to episode 185 of Urgency of Change. Each episode of the Krishnamurti podcast is compiled from carefully chosen extracts from the archives representing different approaches to many of the fundamental issues and questions we all face in our lives. This week's theme is words and language. Upcoming themes are conformity, urgency and culture. This is a podcast from Krishnamurti Foundation Trust. Please visit our updated website at kfoundation.org where you can find a new introduction to Krishnamurti, a growing collection of articles, a wide selection of quotes, and a new index of topics for easy access to carefully selected texts and recordings. Our online store stocks all available Krishnamurti books and ships worldwide. You can also find our regular quotes and videos on Instagram, TikTok and Facebook at Krishnamurti Foundation Trust. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts, which helps our visibility. This week's episode on words and language has five sections. This first extract is from Krishnamurti's second talk in New Delhi, 1963, titled A Mind Caught in Words. It is very difficult to understand the meaning of words and also to be free of words. Most of us who understand English understand more or less the meaning of words. Words have their reference, either in the dictionary or we give a particular significance to words. And I feel it's very important not to be caught in words, because most of us live with words. To us, words have an extraordinary significance. And all our thinking, our feeling, is limited by words. Words 
and symbols play, play an enormous part in our life. And to really comprehend those words and to be free of words and to go beyond the word is very important for the man who really understand what is true. So before we go this evening into this question of what is conflict and if it is possible at all to be free of conflict, we must, it seems to me, understand the structure of word, the meaning which we give to a particular word, and discover through that, through the awareness of the word, how the mind is caught in a web of words. Because we live, most of us, by formulas, by concepts, either self-created or handed down to you by society, which we call ideals, which we call the, the necessity to have a certain pattern according to which we live. And if you examine those formulas, those ideas, those concepts and those patterns, you will see that they are words. And these words control our activities, shape our thoughts, make us feel in a certain way. And words condition our thinking, our being. <coughs> Please do give little attention to this, because a mind caught in words is incapable of being free. A mind functioning within the pattern of a formula is obviously a conditioned slavish mind. It is incapable of thinking something anew, afresh. And most of our thinking, most of our activity of thought is within the boundaries of words and formulas. Take a word like God, love. What extraordinary images, formulas that are all, that come into your mind. A man who would find what, if there is a God, to find out what love implies, means. Obviously, must be free of all the concept formulas.
and to be free of, of the formula, of the concept. The mind refuses to break through because there is fear. So fear takes shelter in words. And we battle over words. So the first thing for a man who would really go into this seriously, to the very end to discover if there is or if there is not a reality, a thing that is beyond the measure of words, must absolutely understand words and be free of formulas. So, before we go very deeply into the question of conflict, which I will do presently this evening, I may use words which may have a particular meaning to you, and if I may earnestly request, don't translate what is said in terms of your own meaning. Just listen. Don't interpret, don't compare, but just listen. Because most of us do not listen, do not listen. We don't know what it means to listen to somebody. It is as much an art to listen as any other form of activity. Every activity is an art. Whether you go to your office, it is an art, there is a beauty in it. And if one can listen without comparison, without evaluating what is being said in terms of, of words, that's all what you're going to do. You will listen with words which you already know, but that's not listening. A mind that listens is completely attentive, not in the framework of words. It wants to find out, and to find out the mind must be astonishingly alive. When a mind is not alive and is caught in a formula, a religious or economic or a social formula, either of Karl Marx or of this fantastic idea of non-violence in this country, or according to the Gita or other books, to listen implies 
an astonishing awareness of not only of your own words, of your own formulas, but putting those aside to listen to find out what the speaker is saying. Not to argue, not to agree. That's very cheap to argue and to agree or to contradict. But to understand, to find out what whether the what the speaker is saying is false or true, not according to a formula. Not according to what you know, because what you know is merely a series of words which you have been which have been handed to you, or the things which you have experienced, which again establish further strengthening of your conditioning and with those you listen. And therefore you never learn. The second extract is from the fifth discussion in Sanan, 1976, titled Separating Words from Facts. What is the function of a word? Word, if, if we use, if we know English or French or Italian, whatever it is, we use a word to communicate, to point out. When we say door, we mean a particular door, to point it out. And words have become, have made us, words have, have made the mind accept and build a prison round itself. That is, we are prisoners of words, right? You dislike certain words and like certain words. Words condemn or help and so on. So, what is the function of a series of words or a sentence? obviously, to communicate. Right? That's simple enough. And do words... Is there a thought without a word? If there is no word, is there a thinking? Or the words help to think. You're following? Or is thinking related to words? If there were no words, would there be thinking? Is there a thinking without a word, without word? Word being symbol, image, picture, all that. So, is thinking part 
of the structure of words. I want to tell you something. Can can that be communicated without word? And it can be communicated without the word if we are both at the same level, at the same intensity, with the same interest. Then there is a communion, which is non-verbal. We understand it instantly by a gesture, which is not a word. So, part of thought is the verbalization to communicate what one thinks, right? I think about something and I want to communicate it to you. Either we are both telepathically in communication, which is dangerous, misleading, unless we are both at the same level, with the same interest, with the same energy. So there is a non-verbal communication, right? A gesture, a look, and a verbal communication. But both are involved in thinking, right? I think something, I may not put it into words, but I make a gesture, and that gesture conveys in a great deal, or a look. So words become important only for communication, and if we both understand the meaning of the word, then communication is fairly simple. But if, if, I am spo- if I spoke in Russian and you didn't understand Russian, then we can't communicate. Now, move from there. So thought is, a for- is part of verbalization. That is, is thinking the whole process of thinking, is it, is word, are words necessary, to make it very simple, are words necessary to think? You understand my question? Or is there a thinking without a word, without words? Is this all becoming too intellectual? So, we must go, back, go further into it. That is, is there a thinking without image, symbol, word? And if there is no symbol, word, image, what is then thinking? There may be no thinking, or a different form of thinking. We won't go into that because that leads somewhere else. 
And what relationship is the, has the world to actuality? The actuality of a word like the tent is not the tent. The word is not the thing. That's simple, anybody. But for us, the word is the thing. We identify the word with the thing. We don't separate the word from the thing. That's part of awareness. You get it? To separate the word from the thing. The tent is not the actual tent, the word. The word tent is not the actuality. But for most of us, when we use the word tent, the imagination is already, you see the tent. So there is no separation. So part of awareness is to separate the word from the thing. I wonder, is this clear? So that makes a tremendous difference. Because I'm going to show you something in a minute, just hold on a minute. The word fear is different from the actual actuality, right? The feeling of it. So we have to find out if the word creates the fear or the feeling of fear independent of the word. That's part of awareness. You understand? To separate the word from the actual. Then, if the word is different from the from fear, the word fear is different from the actual. Then, what is the actual without the word? That's part of awareness. Are you following all this? Is this too complex? So, is. The, Please, I'll re- going to repeat it again. Is the word fear the actual? And does the actual exist without the word? If it exists without the word, is it fear? That's part of awareness. You understand? So if it is independent of the word, then what is it? Which we call fear. If it is if that feeling is independent of that word, what is it? It is just a sensation. Right? There's nothing wrong with sensation. I wonder if you care. So All that is part of awareness, to separate the word from the actual. This is a, if you you understand, to to do this all the time. 
the word wife is not the actual. <laughs> but the word wife instantly is identified with the actual. To separate the word from the actual, then there is quite a different process of observation, awareness. You understand? Are we getting somewhere? So, awareness is not the word. The word awareness is not the fact. And to be aware, does it need a technique? That was one of the questions. Obviously not. Because if you practice it, awareness, just a mechanical process of verbalization and not separate the word from the actual. You can do that now as we are sitting, right? So, the whole process, uh, the whole significance of awareness, part of it, is to separate the word from the thing. Because the word Smith, Mr. Smith, is not Mr. Smith. But to, but if if I look at him without the name, he's quite a different entity. So I, this is a tremendous process of awareness. which needs no practice, no technique, I can instantly see the truth of it. Then in awareness is there choice. You understand my question? I am aware of you, uh, the speaker is aware of all of you sitting there with different colour, shirts and blouses, whatever it is. To observe or to be aware without choice of the observe the colours without saying I like or don't like, this is good, this just to observe. Hmm? Right? So to be aware implies the separation of the word from the fact, and awareness implies without, in which there is no choice whatsoever. And this awareness is not concentration, is it? Concentration implies exclusion, focusing one's desire on a particular thing, to concentrate, to, to focus one's observation on a particular thing, excluding other things, right? So concentration implies uh, building a wall around yourself to, in order to exclude and concentrate, right? What is the relationship of awareness 
to concentration and attention. Uh, this is all of, you follow? We are moving further into our attention. So, when there is an awareness, is there a concentration? You, am I putting the question? Concentration, we said, is focusing one's desire, one's wish, one's, I won't use the word attention, on a particular thing, and so exclude anything that interferes with that concentration. Right? Awareness is not concentration, and is attention concentration? It is not. Where there is attention, there is no centre from which to be to attend. Whereas in concentration, there is a centre, and therefore exclusion. I wonder if you. So we have talked about it enough. Hmm? So to be aware implies the separation of the world from the fact. And in that awareness there is no choice but only observation. You can, you can see this happening in daily life, if you observe it. When you are interested in something very much, you observe without any word. And uh, attention is that. Attention implies no centre and therefore no border. Therefore attention is Tremendous, vast. The third extract is from Krishnamurti's first talk in Ojai, 1978, titled The Pressure of Language. Please, I must keep on repeating this, because most of us are accustomed to listen to a talk, to accept or reject what is said. But what we are trying to do, what we must do together, is to examine together, explore together, find out together learn together. Otherwise, these meetings have no value whatsoever. We can repeat phrases, or some acquired knowledge, but when we are walking together, the whole issue becomes entirely different. Doesn't it? Let's see, walking together in a lane. Perhaps we see the same things together, the same shadows, the same outlines of the hill, the ma- majesty of a mountain, the swift flowing river. 
when we see it together, the com our communication becomes extraordinarily simple and clear. But if you are looking at the stream and consider what a bore it is to walk, or this or that, then we are not walking together. So please, if I may repeat it over and over again, and I will during all these talks, that we are working together to find out, to learn together. So learning together means that there must be a, a common interest, a common inquiry, a common urge to find out, not to be told, because we are not authority. Though the speaker sits on a platform which is merely for convenience, it doesn't give him, give him any status. So, having no authority, and you, obviously, if you are at all inquiring, have rejected all kinds of authority, which we shall presently go into. But it becomes very important that you and the speaker move together, find out together. Then communication becomes not only easy, but also we are not driven by language. Most people are driven by the language they use. They are compelled, forced, their reaction is according to the verbal language they use. Please, this is again very important to understand. I hope you are also working as the speaker is working. We use language to communicate, to inform, to see clearly. But when language uses us, when you use the word socialism in America, it has all kinds of implications. And that word, with its reactions, which awakens the reactions, makes us act in a particular way. Right? So, you are driven by language, compelled by language, you react to language. And when we do that, 
communication becomes extraordinarily difficult. After all, language is an instrument, and the instrument mustn't drive us. We must drive it. Is this clear? No, please see it for yourself, not because the speaker is saying something which you perhaps have not thought about, but if you could observe it in yourself, that is, how any word, especially a word very loaded like socialism or communism or Catholicism, of Protestantism, Hinduism and so on, they have a particular influence, pressure on you. So the instrument is using us. We are not using the instrument. You can only use the instrument if you understand the exact meaning of words unemotionally, without any reaction, say, for instance, when you use the word communism, generally that word makes us antagonistic to that word, if you are capitalist or whatever you are. But if you observe the word, use the word without any emotional content, without any reaction, the word communism becomes very simple. You can both of us understand, if you know all the implications of that word, what it denotes, as it is totalitarianism, and so on, Marxism, Maoism, if we use those words knowing their meaning, their content, then the word is not using us, but we are using the word. Is this? Can we go on from there? I hope you see this point very clearly, because we are, we are going to see the how Language acts as great pressure on us, and this pressure distorts communication. Right? Is it the first time that you're hearing all this? If you are, please learn about it. Find out whether the word is using you or you are using the word. If you are using the word, which is the language, which is communication and so on and so on, if you are using the word, then if you use the word knowing what it means, without the emotional content, without the reaction to that word, then and I will also use that word in the same way as you do, then communication becomes very simple. Right? But whereas if you have 
certain reactions to the word and the speaker may not have it, then communication is not possible. Clear? So, one of the factors in our life is that language acts as a great pressure on us. And therefore, distorts not only communication, but the clarity of thinking. Any pressure, <coughs> whether economic, social, moral, idealistic, or the pressure of authority, or the pressure of language, is a distorting factor. Right? May we go on? If you have a pressure, a weight on you all the time, physically, you cannot walk straight. But if you have pressure, emotional, linguistic, economic, social and so any form of pressure distorts action. This again is obvious. If one is married or a girlfriend or a boyfriend and the man or the woman is constantly exercising pressure on another, then communication is not possible. And his pressure is reacting against the other pressure. Right? So there's, there's this constant pressure in which we live. Our whole moral, ethical, religious, political, economic structure is based on this principle, pressure. Hmm? Do you see this? There is pressure not only climatically, but there is the pressure of wrong, of a linguistic, Reaction. The pressure between man and woman, the pressure, economic, social, ethical, religious, ideal, ideological pressures. We live, all of us, under pressure, weight, strain. Therefore, our action is always distorted. If you are acting under pressure, you cannot act freely, or rightly, or accurately. So we are going to, together, explore, if it is possible, please listen, if it is possible to live our whole life without any kind of pressure. Don't say it is not possible, then you block yourself. Whereas if you begin to inquire, find out, go into it very, very, very carefully, 
then you might find it is possible, entirely, urgently possible to live without any kind of pressure. Therefore, when there is no pressure, there is freedom. And it is only in freedom that can be total observation of the whole totality of life. Right? I hope you are together in this. First of all, I say, we said, there is the pressure of language. The whole commercial pressure through language, by this, by this, by this, on television, you know, that's what goes on in this country, which, unfortunately, America is becoming the standard of the rest of the world, most unfortunately. So, please bear in mind that we are not doing propaganda. I'm not trying to, the speaker is not trying to convince you of anything. Trying to persuade you. Trying to dominate you. Trying to frighten you. But together, you and the speaker are going to examine these pressures in life and whether it is possible to be totally and entirely, absolutely free of pressure. When there is the cessation, the, when there is no pressure whatsoever, <clears throat> the brain itself undergoes a radical change. The fourth extract is from the third discussion in Sarnen, 1974, titled Words Separate the Observer from the Observed. When I see a mountain, when I observe a mountain, the word mountain springs into my mind. The word. The word has its associations, and those associations are stored up in the brain. So when I see that range, that line of snow and peaks and the beauty of it, I say it's a mountain, right? Go slowly. And the world has already divided the fact from the observer. You understand? You, you follow? Am I right in this? <laughs> you understand what I am saying? Word or the screen of words have separated the observer and the observed. 
obviously. The words that, with their associations, bring about a certain feeling, sensation. You follow? My wife. I have, there are certain associations with that word, and the words and the memory are separated. The, the woman and the man. My wife. Right? Just we are investigating, we are moving. So there is this problem of verbalization. And I know the word is not the thing. And yet all the time words are coming into action. Right? So words, phrases, all that plays an immense importance. He is an Italian. Immediately there is a division. Now, can the mind be free of the word, of the mountain, and look at it? Then is there a division? Division being space, distance, time. I wonder. You follow this? It will come slowly, slowly, sir. Patience. So I see the image I have is projected in front, which says that's a mountain. The image which I have about a tree divides. The image is my memory, is memory, knowledge, experience. And when I say it's my wife, the word is a symbol, an image, put together by various incidents, pleasures and so on, so on, so on, which are all in the memory as words. So I'm questioning, I'm asking, the division may come into being when, with the word, After all, there is the Christian, which is a word, with all the symbols, with all the tradition, with all the ideas. And there are the Jews, Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, they're all words. And the mind and the brain is the instrument of words. The word creates the thought. Without the word is there a thought? 
I hope somebody will follow all this, contradict it, or say, no, you're not talking nonsense. Just so. Not as I say. We, he says, in Italian, the thinker invents the word. Yeah, is a consequence. The word is a consequence of the thinker. I am saying the opposite. Do, do, you may be right, sir. But let's look at it. I said, we are investigating. I, the speaker said, the word divides, the word is employed in order to recognize, and so on, the word. And I said, the word may be the division. And the word, our friend says, is the expression of thought. Right? Now, is there, is there a thought without the word, without the symbol, without the image? You understand? We said there is the thinker first, and then words flow from that thinker. And therefore, those words divide people, words being labels, etiquette, images. Now we are, that is a generally accepted tradition all over the world. The thinker is the employer of words. The thinker is the maker of words. The thinker uses the word to convey his thoughts. The thinker is, in essence, non-verbal. Is that so? I do not know if you ever tried to find out if you don't use a word, words. Is there a think? Is there a thought? When you look at that mountain. There is perception, perception, sensation, and the actual contact, physical contact with the mountain, the stone, the river, the tree. So, seeing, sensation, contact, contact, sensation. Hmm? And from that, this whole question of desire arises. Now, can 
The mind observe. Please listen to this. Can the mind observe that mountain without the word, without the sensation, without the contact, sensation contact? Just look, non-verbally. The final extract in this episode is from the Sixth Discussion in London, 1965, titled Looking Without Words. You see, we look at things from, from a centre which creates space around itself. I look at you from my centre of memories, all the rest of that, a centre, and that centre creates a space round itself, and through that space I look. So I never look at I never observe you, I only observe you through my space which has been created through by a centre which is the experience, knowledge, memory. <coughs> I can only look at you when there is no centre. Really look, as I can look at the flower, so I so to observe without a center which is the time binding nature, which is the result of pleasure, and therefore that centre is always creating illusion and never coming face to face with fact. So can I look, as I can look at a flower, a cloud, a bird on the wing, with that... <coughs> I can look at a cloud without a centre, without a, a word, the word which creates thought. I can look at it. Can I look at every problem, the problem of fear, problem of pleasure, look without the word?
Because the word creates, breeds thought. And thought is memory, experience, pleasure, and therefore distorting factor. This is really it's quite simple. It's really quite astonishingly simple. And because it is very simple, we mistrust it. We want everything very complicated. We want it to be cunning. And all cunning is covered with perfume of words. If I can look at a flower non-verbally, and I care, anybody can do it if you give sufficient attention. Can't I look with that same objective, non-verbal, attention to the problems that I have, to look out of silence, <coughs> which is non-verbal, therefore non uh, the thinking machinery in operation, it is pleasure and time, just to look. I think that's the crux of the whole thing. Not to approach from the periphery, which only complicates life tremendously, but to look at life with all its complex problems of livelihood, sex, death, misery, sorrow, the agony of in being tremendously alone, to look at all that out of silence, which means without a center, without the word which creates the reaction of thought which is memory, and hence time. To look without association, I think that is the real problem, the real uh, issue. If the mind can look at, look at life that way, there is immediate action, not an idea, an action. 
and hence the elimination of conflict altogether. Perhaps we'll talk things over together. You mean you can look at thought in the same way as you look at a cloud without using without it may use not abolish thought, but you can look at it without using it. Is that what you have in mind? So you look at a flower. <coughs> Actually look at it. When you look at it actually, there is no thought behind it. You are looking at it non-botanically, <coughs> non-speculatively. You don't classify it. You don't you just look. Apparently we have never done this. And you, you look at the, at the mind in the same way. Yeah, the big, the big, no, don't bother about the mind. That's a little more complex. Begin with the flower. To look, to listen, to learn, all are the same. They're all. It's all one. But. And when you look at a flower, not to let thought interfere with it, then see if you can look at your wife or husband, your neighbor or your country or whatever it is, look, without the interference of thought as memory and time and pleasure. And as we cannot look, see that we observe, we say, is there a method to come to that? A system by which I will train my mind to look without <laughs> it comes to absurd. A simple fact which is that we cannot possibly look at a flower without the interference of thought as memory or as pleasure. <coughs> and can, I, can the mind, can there be observation in the same way about everything that arises in me and outside of me. <coughs> Not only the flower, but the words we use, the gestures, the ideas, the concepts, the self-identifying memories, the images that we have of ourselves and of others.
to be so widely aware is only possible when there is an observation of things external, when I can look at a cloud, a tree, without the interference of word. Surely this is fairly simple, isn't it? Yes, but Krishnaji, it's not just the interference of word, association. It is the swiftness of association. Yes, sir, the swiftness of association. <coughs> Therefore you're not looking. If I want to see you or see the cloud, see my wife or my husband, I must look and not let the association interfere. But the, the word, the association interferes instantly because behind it there is pleasure. Do, do see this as so simple once? we understand this thing clearly, then we'll be able to look. Krishna you said that what just now about looking at the cloud without thought, and then you said that feeling. Yet when one is able to, when one does see a cloud flower without thought interfering, one gets tremendous energy. And this energy I mean we use the word seems to mean like feeling. And I wonder if you can you see, sir, I purposely said thought is feeling. There is no feeling without thought. And behind thought there is the pleasure. So those three things go together – pleasure, the word, the thought, the feeling. <coughs> They're not separate. And to look, <coughs> to observe without thought, without feeling, without word, that very Observation is energy, of course, obviously, because our energy, our energy is dissipated by the word, by the association, <coughs> the thought and the pleasure and time. It's dissipated. Therefore, I have no energy to look. There is no energy to look. you see that, then thought is not a distraction. Then thought it doesn't enter into itself. It's not a question of a distraction. I want to, I want to understand you. Wait a minute. I want to understand you. Why should thought interfere? Why should all my prejudices interfere with my look, my understanding? It interferes because I'm afraid of you. 
you may get my job, you know, ten different things. So that's why I said, we said, that one more. first let's look at the flower, the cloud. If I can look at the cloud without a word and association and the swiftness, as you pointed out, then I can look at myself, at the whole of my life with all its problems. And then you will say, is that all? Haven't you oversimplified it? I don't think so. Because facts are never, facts never create problems. The fact that I am afraid doesn't create a problem. But the thought that says, I must not be afraid and creates illusion about, and so on, so on, that creates the problem, not the fact. 